We turn in the word of God to Mark chapter 8 and the first nine verses. We'll just read again the first two. In those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Amen. Thus far we read the word of God. Our theme this morning is grace for the present. Grace for the present. We come now to the much neglected account of the feeding of the 4,000. Many, many people have heard of the feeding of the 5,000, which is recorded in chapter 6 of the book of Mark. Uh, but much fewer have actually taken note of this second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Needless to say, some liberal scholars find a problem with the fact of these two accounts. Why there should be a problem, I have no idea, except when men are full of hatred in their hearts for the word of God. There is no problem. They are two separate occasions, two separate miracles performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are several differences. The most obvious one is that in the first case there were 5,000 or 5,000 men plus women and children. And in this case there were 4,000 for 4,000 men plus women and children. In the first case, the Lord Jesus used five loaves and two fishes. In this case, he used seven loaves and a few small fishes, we are told. In uh, the feeding of the 5,000, Mark tells us that they sat down upon the green grass in chapter 6 verse 39 in this case we're just told that they sat upon the ground and most probably it was later in the year and uh, uh, or there was no green grass then also in the feeding of the 5,000 it is evident that there were villagers nearby Verse 36 of chapter 6, send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Whereas in this case, it is evident uh, that uh, the danger was much more extreme, because the Lord Jesus said if they went away fasting to their own houses, they would faint by the way. And in verse 4, the disciples say from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness uh, it seems it was much more remote uh, from villages and houses then again in the feeding of the 5,000 the fragments gathered were 12 baskets full whereas in the feeding of the 4,000 it is 7 baskets full but also what is not so evident uh, in uh, the English uh, Bible is that the word basket 
used in the feeding of the 5,000 and the word basket used in the feeding of the 4,000 are not the same Greek word. Uh, the one used in the feeding of the 5,000 means something more like uh, a hand basket, uh, whereas uh, in the feeding of the 4,000 it's more like a basket that we would associate with a hamper, a much bigger basket. Uh, and uh, the two words are used also uh, in uh, chapter 8 when the Lord Jesus speaks in verse 19 when I break the five loaves among five thousand how many baskets full of fragments took ye up they say unto him twelve it's the word that's used back in chapter 6 at the feeding of the five thousand but then in verse 20 and when the seven among four thousand how many baskets and he uses the, the other word the word that's used in the account of the feeding of the four thousand how many baskets full of fragments took you up I took you up and they said seven that word basket in the feeding of the four thousand is the same word used when the apostle Paul was lowered in a basket down the city wall in Acts 9 and verse 25 so it's referring to a, a bigger kind of basket that Paul could actually get into as he was lowered uh, down from the city wall so then there are these various differences as well as the similarities but this account is evidently included for our learning it is not mere repetition let us learn firstly Christ's compassion Christ's compassion verse 2 I have compassion on the, on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat in the feeding of the 5,000 we're simply told that Jesus had compassion upon the multitude here we're given his actual words he declares I have compassion upon the multitude it expresses a movement of the feeling the emotions and Christ perfectly truly declares of himself I have compassion upon the multitude and he tells us this in order that we should hear and understand that in him we have a compassionate and a pitying saviour our compassion always falls short of what it should be but he could say with absolute truth I have compassion upon the multitude the sinless redeemer is moved by the plight of fallen men and women in this world <coughs> and in the God man the love of God expresses itself in this emotion of the human soul of the redeemer notice also it was toward the multitude this compassion of the divine redeemer expressed in his human emotions was toward the multitude now it is certain that not all of this multitude were ordained to eternal life not all were of the election of grace yet the multitude were the objects of Christ's compassion it could not be otherwise 
the Lord Jesus was born of a woman and made under the law and that law requires thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and the Lord Jesus fulfilled that law to perfection and since he was always a divine person in all his actions then it must be the case that Christ's compassion for the multitude reflects the favor of God shown in this present life uh, to, all, to all men in general even though not all men are ordained to everlasting life and salvation in eternity it will be otherwise the redeemed will be blessed forever in glory and the lost will not receive any uh, display of the favor of God but in this world God shows his kindness uh, to uh, all men and that goodness ought to lead them to repentance but then notice that this compassion extended to physical need as well as spiritual I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat and if I send them away fasting to their own houses they will faint by the way for divers of them came from far when we looked at the feeding of the five thousand we rightly emphasized Christ's compassion shown in his teaching of the people Mark 6.34 and Jesus when he came out saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things the Lord Jesus there showed his compassion for their souls he taught them the truth and yet this is not exclusive of, of compassion for the physical needs of men we cannot treat people as mere souls as if they were not whole human beings the fall of man has affected man's physical condition and salvation will ultimately reach his very body the bodies of uh, the people of God will be raised to glory and so we cannot uh, say that we have compassion upon the souls of men without having compassion also as to their physical needs the real love of the truth as it is in Jesus will make us compassionate towards all the needs of men Psalm 37 and uh, verse 21 Psalm 37 verse 21 the wicked borroweth and payeth not again but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth and then verse 26 he is ever merciful and lendeth and his seed is blessed the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 and verse 20 Proverbs 31 20 she stretcheth out her hand to the poor 
Yea, she reached forth her hands to the needy. Ephesians 4.28 Let him that stole steal no more, but work with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give, to give to him that needeth. We are to do good unto all men, especially to the household of faith. And the Apostle John, 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word only or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And in James chapter 2 and verse 15, James 2 verse 15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? This tells us that if our faith, our professed faith in Christ, does not affect our attitude towards uh, material things, then it is not genuine saving faith at all. That means if you profess to be a Christian and it doesn't alter your attitude towards your money and possessions, your profession is worth nothing. It's a sham. If our love of the doctrine of the Word of God does not make us compassionate, it is not that love of the truth which reflects the love of God. It is not a love of the truth that is the outworking of our love to God himself. What it may be is the love of a system which reflects self-love and pride. It is possible to have a notional understanding of biblical teaching and make it a vehicle for self-glory. But when the truth is really loved, because we love the God of that truth, it will result in conformity to Christ and a compassion toward others. The other kind of supposed love of the truth is not a love of the truth at all. It is a delight in our own imagined ability and our own uh, professed understandings. And it is a self-love and not a love to God and to the real truth of his word. It is simply making the truth of God a vehicle of self-love and pride and it gives occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. If we as a congregation are slowly becoming known as a congregation that love the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of the word of God, well that's good, but it ought to mean that we will also become known as a congregation of people who show a Christ-like compassion. Because if we really love the truth of the word of God, it will make us Christ-like. It will make us like Christ who had compassion upon the multitude. And so the love of Christ and of his word ought to make us a compassionate people. 
not this charade that the polit politicians are talking about but the real thing biblical and reformed doctrine must produce Christ like people and it must do so because it is the truth and the more truth we have the more Christ like we ought to become So are we known as a church of people with Christ-like compassion? A compassion that shows itself in evangelism, a compassion that shows itself also in uh, caring for the needs of those around us. The two are not mutually exclusive. The reason they'd been three days in the wilderness was because Christ had been teaching his truth to them. But then secondly, we have Christ's power and grace not appreciated. Christ's power and grace not appreciated. Verse 4, And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? A compassion that is not, uh, Christ's power and grace are not appreciated. The first thing we notice here is that Christ's compassion is not adequately shared by the disciples. Christ spoke of his compassion for the multitude to the disciples. You have that in verse 1. He said, uh, he, verse 1, he called his disciples unto him and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude he says to them I have compassion he's telling them they are meant to respond to that statement I have compassion on the multitude he says it to the disciples it, it, it ought to have uh, brought a response it was a compassion that they ought to have shared but they did not seem to adequately enter into it so as to seek in him the solution of the problem. And so the disciples simply declare the hopelessness of the situation. How can anyone feed this, this multitude here in this wilderness? They don't enter into his compassion and they lack confidence in his power. They do not appear to look to him with urgency because of compassion on the multitude uh, to deliver the multitude. Despite their familiarity with his previous work of feeding the 5,000. They don't seem to have grasped the significance of that miracle nor of this one when it took place. As verse 18 says, Christ says to them, Having eyes see ye not, and having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember? All they do is point out how hopeless the situation is. Israel did this continually. In Psalm 78, verse 19 and verse 20, they said, God gave water out of the rock, but can he give his people flesh to eat? In fact, at almost every possible 
opportunity to display distrust in God, Israel did it. From coming out of Egypt to going into Canaan, at almost every critical point, they disbelieved the word of God. Are we any different? Well, no, we're not. We're not. We might think, surely if we'd been there, if we'd seen the feeding of the 5,000, seen the Lord Jesus bless the bread and the fishes, and actually handled the bread and fishes as they were given out to the 5,000, and actually handled the fragments and put them into the baskets, surely when this situation arose, we would do better. Well, by nature, we wouldn't do any better at all. And uh, even though living in the full light and significance of the risen Christ and living subsequent to Pentecost, yet still we are guilty of this waywardness, this unbelief. Is there any Christian in this place? who cannot say, yes, I've experienced the kindness of the Lord in the past. Not only in saving grace, but in crisis situations, when he has heard my cries, he's answered my prayers, or even without calling, he's answered and delivered us. And yet, what happens when a new crisis arises? What happens when a new difficulty comes. Is it not the case that we distrust him? Our confidence in him is unsteadfast, unstable and fluctuating. And we need to seek grace to be established, strengthened, settled, so that our hearts are fixed trusting in the Lord. And so that we're not afraid in the day of evil tidings. Then thirdly, we have here grace to help. Christ's grace to help. Christ's grace to help in verse 5 to 8. He sat them down. Then he gave thanks. We might just notice in passing that those standing and kneeling and prostration are the normal postures in prayer in the scriptures. Yet, at giving of thanks for a meal, the practice here is that the posture in which the meal is eaten is the posture in which the thanks were given. So the Lord Jesus told them to sit down, and then he gave thanks. So although standing and kneeling are the norms for prayer, yet it is with, uh, we have biblical precedent for giving thanks and eating in the same posture. So they sat down and they gave thanks. That's why at communion time, at the Lord's Supper, uh, because it is a meal, albeit uh, a sacrament and a symbolic meal, we remain seated for the giving of thanks because it is a meal and to be treated as such. And here we have the precedent that the posture in which we eat is the posture in which thanks are given. But that's rather by the way. But let us notice, firstly here, an undisputed need. An undisputed need. Verse 2. 
I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat and if I send them away fasting to their own houses they will faint by the way the Lord Jesus knew what he was going to do but he spells out the reality of the situation the Lord is the one who meets our needs all the time anyway but he spells out the obvious need of this situation now it is true that even in our day to day uh, enjoyment of the things that we have need of that the Lord is the one who provides for us albeit the means are undramatic but there are times when in his providence he highlights our need and our dependence by making it very obvious that we are utterly helpless you see because we're sinners when the Lord provides for us in the ordinary way day by day we're inclined not to look beyond the secondary causes we don't look beyond the ordinary means of his provision and his care and so when things go on smoothly in the providence of God we are inclined to attribute what we have and what we enjoy to the mere, mere means that the Lord uses to provide for us and so from time to time he brings up his children with a jolt and uh, they feel their helplessness he brings about a situation where uh, the normal means are uh, not adequate and where we feel helpless we're helpless anyway in ourselves we're dependent upon God anyway even when nothing shocking or untoward is happening even when things are going on calmly we're dependent on God but there are times when he turns our lives upside down so that we know that that is the case and so we have here an acknowledged need verse 4 the, the disciples response is poor but at least it contains this that they know that no mere man can meet this situation and this also is for our learning the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 8 and 9 says that in Asia we were pressed out of measure and above strength there seemed to be no limit to the pressure and it was beyond him God in his providence brought even the experienced apostle to a situation of desperation in verse 9 he says that our trust should not be in ourselves but in God that raiseth the dead God brings his children into desperate situations that they should learn dependence upon him but surely in this miracle we are meant to learn lessons for our souls surely we are because the miracles 
are meant to teach us about the Savior and the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 are meant to teach us about Christ the bread of life what can we learn firstly if you're not a Christian if you're not a Christian you must be brought to see your own helplessness you must learn to see that no one but Christ can help you no one just as this 4,000 in the wilderness no man could feed them no mere man so you must see that you have a desperate need far greater than three days without food the need of everlasting salvation from sin and from guilt and from the just condemnation that you deserve you must see that not only do you need deliverance but that no one in the world can deliver you but only the Lord Jesus Christ that you cannot save yourself that your church cannot save you that knowing other Christians and being friends with them will not save you that only the Lord Jesus Christ can do you any good just as surely as only he could give bread in the wilderness so only he can deliver you from the guilt of sin as long as you do not face that there is no hope for you none at all as long as you hang on to some vain hope that somehow you can deliver your soul from the guilt that, that you have before God there is no hope only Christ only Christ is the bread of life only Christ who bore the guilt of sin on the cross of Calvary only he is the bread of life only he can save only he can deliver only he can make you right with God and bring you to heaven and you must seek the compassionate Savior the scriptures speak of Christ's joys and his sorrows and his thankfulness and his anger and his wonder and his zeal but they speak very much of his compassion he is a compassionate Savior perhaps because of your great sins and your sense of guilt you feel you hesitate to seek this Savior but you must hesitate no more you must seek him and he will receive his mercy is a great deep that none have reached the bottom of no one ever sought Christ and was told there is not mercy sufficient he will graciously take all your sins away and they will be remembered no more he will supply all your need of righteousness and of peace with God and of grace to help until you are in glory
But then if you are a Christian, let me speak to those who are troubled Christians. Christians in trouble. Even in a little gathering like this, I have not the slightest doubt that there are Christians here who are in trouble. Have you not found him faithful in the past? Have you not found him to be a God most gracious and of great kindness, of pity and of power and of faithfulness and of truth? Have you not known the loving kindness of the Lord in the past? And the Lord who fed the 5,000 fed the 4,000 as well. And the Lord who has been gracious to us in the past has not lost either his pity or his power in the present. He is not careless or helpless in our present troubles. The Lord who undertook for you in the past will undertake in the present. His compassions fail not. He is full of pity and power still and he knows all our helplessness and all our sorrows. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. And let me speak to embittered Christians. <coughs> embittered Christians. Are you disillusioned with all the sham compassion of the world and even the professing church? Has it made you cynical? So that you misuse biblical doctrine as a means of keeping at arm's length from the sorrows of men. It is done. And so you've made biblical doctrine a defense rather than a means of sanctification and Christ-likeness. If you're a cynical Christian, you must turn from it. If you are an embittered Christian, you must turn from your bitterness and all your cynicism to seek again that Lord Jesus Christ, whose likeness you must seek to be conformed to, and who said, I have compassion upon the multitude. Amen.